Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. I'm going to be looking at verses 1 through 14 this morning. And you can find it on page 942 in the Bibles that are provided there in the pews. I would encourage you to open those Bibles and have them uh, there in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, then there's some white and blue Bibles right there in the pews. Please take one of those when you go. We'd love for you to have that. This morning, we gather, as we do every single Sunday morning, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That Though this is a, a significant day, Easter is a special day, no doubt, where, where we get to celebrate the triumph of Christ over sin and death, Easter is not something that we celebrate just once a year. It's not like a birthday. I mean, if you think about it, if Easter was a birthday, then, then most scholars believe that Easter took place, I think as the video said, April 5th, 33 AD. And so if we celebrated Easter on April 5th, like a birthday, then, then we would not have Easter Sunday, we would have Easter Tuesday this year, and it would be different every single year. But we celebrate Easter on Sunday because that is the day that Jesus rose from the grave. This is the reason why churches gather on Sunday morning, because every single week we want to commemorate the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. And when we recognize what Jesus' resurrection actually means for us, then we can't even resign it to once a week, the first day of the week, but it's an every moment, every day, both now and forevermore affair. This is something that we do over and over and over again because of what Christ's resurrection means for us. You see, we didn't gather here today to merely commemorate the fact that a very unique historical figure physically died and then physically rose to life again. Yes, that is true. Yes, that is supernatural. Yes, that is the work of God. A one-time only historical event that is worthy of our remembrance. Easter is more than a celebration of the fact that Jesus has defeated sin and death and that his physical resurrection in the past holds out for us a promise of a physical resurrection in the future. Now it's all of that, but it means more than that. More to us, bearing upon our everyday lives, but so often we don't focus upon it. We treat Easter like it's a distant physical past that offers a promise of a distant physical future. But friends, if that's all that it is, then why does Scripture say that all of us who were dead in our sin, and that's everybody, not only in this room, But whoever existed, everyone dead in their sin, by faith, have now been made alive together with Christ. How is it that Scripture says that we who are in Him have been buried with Him and also raised with Him? And how is it that Scripture can say that not only through our union with Christ, by faith in Him, have we died and been raised, but even we are right now seated with Him in the heavenly places. And every single one of those is past tense. It's already happening. It's done. So then Easter is more than about Jesus' distant physical past that offers us a distant physical future. And friends, this is really important to us practically. 
in our everyday lives. Because if that's what you believe, right? If you only believe, okay, yeah, Jesus rose a long time ago from the grave physically, and one day everyone else is going to be raised from the dead who, who believes in him, and right, we'll still all stand before him in judgment. The, the righteous, those who by faith have been declared righteous, will be with him forever, and those who have rejected God and died in their sin, they will be eternally separated. If that's all that we believe, then it will drive us either towards legalism that we will think that we have to work out our own salvation, that we have got to make ourselves righteous, that we have to try to earn God's grace, or it will lead us to antinomianism, this lawlessness where we believe that this future promise is secure in Christ, and so it doesn't then matter how I live, that I can just do whatever I please because God will give me what I want. It perverts the grace of God into licentiousness, into cheap grace. Those are two wrong paths that we take. If when we think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we think either about a distant physical past or a distant physical future. When it holds out so much more for us. Easter is a celebration not just of a physical resurrection, but a spiritual resurrection. That Christ in his resurrection has ushered in a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth. And with that, everyone who is in him are now new creations. And so if that is about that, then, then it's about a spiritual resurrection. It's about our past spiritual resurrection. And so what that means for us is it not only holds a promise to us then, but also a present power to enable us to live in that reality right here and right now. But often we don't focus on that. And all of this is possible because of our union by faith with the risen Christ. You see, D Jesus didn't just die and rise again so that we can be forgiven before God. He didn't just die and rise again for our justification, for our future deliverance for our future salvation for, so that we might have eternal life at some point in the future in resurrected bodies that we would eventually become children of God given this glorious future inheritance that's not really ours right now but, but will be someday. Now all of that is true but it means so much more. Jesus died and rose so that by faith we die to sin and live to God. As new creations, we are now able to live in the present as new creations. It changes us from the inside out so that we can, and we can do this because it is God who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we are brought into union with him. By God's grace, we who are now in him are able to live for him by the grace and the power that God himself supplies. And we're going to see this this morning from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. That our union with the resurrected Christ makes it possible for us to walk in new life. It is our union with the resurrected Christ that makes it possible for us to walk in new life. And so with that, let's read of this present resurrection hope from our passage, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so the grace may abound? By no means. 
How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." It is our union with the risen Christ that makes it possible for us to walk in new life. And the first way that we are going to see this from the text is that our union through faith in Christ, we are brought into union in which we are buried with Christ. Now the questions there in verses 1 and 2 set the stage for us. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And Paul's answer is that may it never be. By no means. Right? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, because we're jumping into the middle of a book, in the middle of a line of questions that serve the middle of an argument, it's important for us to, to kind of step back and kind of get an overview of what the Apostle Paul has been arguing for in the book of Romans. So I'm just going to quickly walk you through Paul's argumentation. So Paul begins in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, by saying that God's gospel is powerful to save all who believe. That it can really and truly save all who believe. And all of us need to be saved because chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 3 verse 20 teaches us that every single person in some way has suppressed the truth about God in unrighteousness. That we all, in one way or another, have rebelled against God. We've all rejected Him. We've all tried to live our lives without Him as if this is my world and I am God. And that there are no exceptions to this. Whether they happen to have sinned apart from God's law, or maybe they believe the wrong things or they worship the wrong things, or or maybe they live try, try to live as the Jews did, trying to observe the law, proving that they are unable to keep God's law and earn their way to God, all of us, no matter who we are and what camp we would find ourselves in, are unable to satisfy the righteousness of God, and we will therefore face His wrath. Eternal condemnation because we have sinned against Him. And so what that means is your worldview doesn't work. Atheism doesn't work. Right? Believing false 
in gods, false gods, false belief systems, they don't work. Legalism doesn't work because we are unable in and of ourselves to keep the law. We cannot keep God's law. We cannot please him. And so God provides a solution in chapter 3, verse, verse 21, through chapter 4, verse 25. That God has actually revealed a way for him to both justly judge every single one of our sins. That our sins are actually dealt with. And he is able to provide mercy and grace and life, righteousness, through the death of Christ for sin through those who have faith in him. And using the example of Abraham, he proves that faith is always what God wanted, always what God intended, always what he expected from his people. And faith is the only means by which a person can be made with right, right with God and inherit all of God's promises. But it has to be a right faith. It can't be a wrong one. It's got to be a right one. And so we cannot make ourselves righteous before God by our own efforts. If you're trying to please God by your own morality, you think I'm basically a good person, I keep the law, you know, I, I perform religious rituals regularly, I'm here on Easter, see, I love God, that's not enough. God makes us righteous through faith in Christ. And in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, if we are justified by faith in Christ, by the love of God, who loved us even while we were still sinners, we will certainly be saved from God's wrath and reconciled to him forever. Now, up to this point in Paul's argument, we see that sin is in us, right? You can't read chapters 2 and 3 and kind of walk away thinking, I'm good, I'm fine, right? It says, yeah. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So who's no one? It's everyone. It's you and me, everyone, okay? Right? So that's sin is in us. But when we look at what God has done, right, the death and resurrection of Christ, when we look at justification by faith, we're like, well, you know, that looks like it's all outside of us, that that's what God does outside of us, not necessarily inside of us. And so I want to show us some diagrams to help us to see what happens in us and to us more closely. And so in chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, Paul begins describing two realms. One established in Adam and the other in Christ. Now Paul says that ever since Adam sinned against God, every single man, woman, and child that ever existed was born into and lives in this realm of Adam. Other, uh, so, and, and this realm of Adam is characterized by sin and death. And so whether you're trying to live your life apart from God's law, you're just trying to reject him and go through life like he doesn't even exist, or you are trying in your own power to sort of keep God's law and please him in your own strength, thinking that you can do it all yourself. If you hold to wrong views about God, um, then you are in Adam. And the result of that is that you are in sin and death. Not just that you sin and you will die, but that you are under the dominion of sin and death. But in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, through Jesus' resurrection from the grave, Jesus has established a new realm that is characterized by eternal life, grace, and righteousness through faith in Him. And so right now, both of these realms exist. Right? You can either be in Adam or you can be in Christ. 
Both of them are happening simultaneously. In chapter 6, verse 1, through chapter 7, verse 6, which is where we find our passage, Christians are brought into a, the new realm of Christ. As a result of our union with Jesus in his death and resurrection and his exaltation, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of Christ. Consequently, those who are now united with Christ through faith are freed from the dominion of sin, the law, death, and should therefore live as those who belong to this new realm. And so what Paul is saying is, look, this is who you now are if you're in Christ, and so live as who you now are. Be who you now are in Jesus. But for now, chapter 7, verse 7, through chapter 8, verse 17, reminds us that we currently live in an overlap of these two realms. We need to be freed from the law, not because the law is bad. No, the law is good, but we need to be freed from the law because every single one of us has broken the law. We have all sinned against God. In the present, Christians still sin, okay? So it's not talking about if you're in Christ, you're perfect. No, Christians still sin, but, but they don't want to, and they fight hard against it. But this is because we live in an overlap of these two realms. And this will continue until we are fully and finally freed from Adam's realm by being fully and finally, both spiritually and physically, resurrected, according to chapter 8, verse 11. And yet in the present, we are no longer condemned because Christ has freed us from the law. And so now we can live by the Spirit who works within us so that we can fight and put off the deeds of the flesh. And this Holy Spirit then confirms that we are truly children of God and that we will receive this internal, eternal and glorious inheritance in the saints through Jesus Christ. And then just one more picture here. In chapter 8, verses 18 through 39, this speaks of the final triumph of Christ's realm. Until we are fully freed from Adam's realm, our Christians will still suffer in this fallen world, but this suffering that we experience cannot begin to compare with the wonderful experience that is and that will be ours when God brings sin, suffering, and death to an end and completes his unstoppable plan to glorify us in Christ. So this is our future, okay? And hopefully those, those pictures help us to capture what's going on here. Apart from Christ, we are in Adam. If we are in Christ, we have been transferred into the realm of Christ, but we live in an overlap between the realms until one day at last, fully and finally, when we are both spiritually and physically resurrected, this will be the case. There will only be the realm of Christ and not the realm of Adam. Friends, I want you to see this. You need to see it and understand this so that we don't fall into error thinking that we're simply okay because we profess a faith in some version of a Christ, but don't live in union with him. It's our union with the risen Christ that makes it possible for us to walk in new life, not falling into legalism. We're not trying to make ourselves righteous before him or falling into antinomianism, assuming that just because we've now been justified by faith in Christ and we claim that for ourselves, that we can now live however we want. And this is so important because a lot of times this is what we do. We ping pong back and forth between them. 
Now, it's this second issue of antinomianism that Paul is taking up with these questions in verses 1 and 2. So we're, we're good here. We're back to buried with Christ. You see, because we have been justified by faith in the death and resurrection of Christ, we are not free to sin so that grace may abound. Paul says, look, may it never be. May that never be the case, that we just think that we can go on doing whatever we please and we're going to be covered by the blood of the Lamb. Instead, he says that we have died with Christ. Friends, this is really important because there are people that believe this. There are people in this church that believe this. There are people who actually teach this. Are you familiar with the guy Rasputin, right? The, the advisor and monk for the Russian czar, Nicholas II? This guy was antinomianism to an extreme, right? He, he said, look, not only is it okay that we sin so that grace may abound, but he actually encouraged people to sin so that grace could abound all the more. And you wouldn't believe the things that he convinced people to do. Right? And uh, I won't go into it, but it's, it's pretty out there. But friends, this is a misunderstanding. You see, we were united with Christ in his death so that how can we who died to sin still live in it? We died to sin because spiritually we, our old nature in Adam, died with Christ. And he goes on to say in verse 3, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Now, we've got to clarify what this means here. This doesn't mean that the act of baptism is what saves you. That, you, that when you're baptized physically, when you go down into the water, that somehow you were mysteriously dying with Christ and, and rising again with Christ. No, this is a sign. This is a symbol. This is a shadow of the reality of what we now are in Christ. Through our faith in him, and it is our faith that unites us in the death and burial of Christ and resurrection, that, that we are then plunged into Christ's death and rise again to new life in him. This just symbolizes this fact. When we come together to celebrate Baptism, what we're celebrating is what Good Friday and Easter Sunday has accomplished to us at our conversion, causing us to die to the old realm in Adam and causing us to be born again to this new realm of Christ so that we can now die to sin and live to God. You see, in Adam, we were alive to sin and dead to God. But now in Christ, we die to sin and live to God, and we are dying to sin and living to God all in the same time. The act of baptism cannot do that. It's a public profession that the transformation of grace that gives us new life in Christ has already happened to us, and we want the world to know that we have been given new life in Christ. We want to declare that to the world. Performing this religious act can't do it. And if we thought that way, what we're trying to do is we're trying to turn this, this work, this act, into a means of inheriting or earning God's grace. You see, we're, we're making it a law. When in fact, baptism is a response to grace that we've been given this new life in Christ, a life that will be ours that we're moving towards until at last Christ 
comes again and we are with him forever. And so we're going to see a baptism, but you need to understand this is a public declaration, both of the individual and the church, that this person has new life in Christ and it is a commitment then to walk in that new life. And Paul assumes that every single person Every single believer who has been born again to this living hope in Christ by faith has displayed that desire by their incorporation into Christ and the church through baptism, right? So this is an important point. If you're here and you, you say, I'm, I'm a Christian, but you haven't been baptized, guys, that's, that's, that's an anomaly, Right? We're, we're baptized because we have truly been baptized into the death of Christ. We've been united with him, and we are united with his body, with his people. And so if you are in Christ, you have died with Christ. You have been buried with Christ, and verse 5 says that you have been united with him in a death like his. What is that death like his? It's a death to sin. So here's what it means for us to have been buried with Christ. Verse 6 says, we know that our old self, that old self in Adam, that, that old self that was dead in sin and enslaved to sin and, and condemned by the law under our sin, subject to the power and penalty of death, that old self has been crucified with Christ. Not as just a, a punctiliar moment in time, not in simply a forensic or a positional sense, but our death with Christ is real and it's ongoing. And we were crucified with him for this purpose, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That body of sin, that, that old nature within us that still wants to live under that realm of Adam is being brought to nothing, is being done away with, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You don't have to be that anymore. And so friends, this is not a promise of deliverance from the present influence of sin. This is not suggesting that you can go through life sinlessly perfect, right? As if we can go through life and just, we don't, we don't really sin, we just err. We don't, we don't sin, we err. No, that's not what it means at all. It means that you're no longer mastered by it. You're no longer enslaved to it. We are no longer slaves to our own sinful desires. We can now say no to sin and yes to God. In Adam, all we could say was yes to sin and no to God. But now we can say no to sin and yes to God because we are in Christ. And through our union with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we have been both empowered and summoned, called to. Verse 7 says, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. And not just freed from the penalty, the consequences of sin. I don't have to feel bad about that anymore. I don't have to feel guilty. I'm good to go. I'm a-okay. I can do whatever I want. But that we are freed from its power over us. That we don't have to sin. That we can choose to put God first in our lives. That sin that, that just seems to just be automatic in your life, that you can't help but do it, that doesn't have to rule over you. And friends, I hope you can see your need of that. That you would want that. That you would see sin and call it for what it is. This is horrific. 
This is eternally destructive and separates me from God, from God forever. But yet, it doesn't have to master me. You can be freed from the power of sin in Christ to become more like him. And friends, justification by faith is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. I can't even tell you the number of kids in my youth group that would come forward, right, and pray the sinner's prayer and go through the act of being baptized and then just live however they wanted because they thought in their minds, this is just a get-out-of-hell-free card. This is just some fire insurance policy. I'm still going to do my own thing. I'm still going to live my own way because they didn't understand what it means to be united with Christ. God's grace is more than unconditional forgiveness. Justification is inseparable from our own sanctification, our progressively becoming more like Jesus. And grace is a present power that transforms us, making it possible for us to actually die to sin and actually live to God. We can actually change through grace, by faith, because of our union with Christ. And so that leads us into the next point. Through our union with Christ, we not only died to sin, we were buried with Christ. Second, through his resurrection, we were also raised to walk in new life. Now friends, if you're like me, when you read over Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, you notice a whole lot of sayings that just kind of basically boil down in your mind to say, okay, don't sin, right? That the goal of life is somehow to stop sinning, just stop it. You, you accept Christ, you come to faith, so you just stop sitting. Stop it, stop it, stop it. But that's not what Paul is ultimately arguing for here. Yes, that's a part of it, but if you try to go through the Christian life and you're only focused about trying to kill sin, to put it to death, if that's your only focus, you are going to be miserable. It's going to kill you. Yes, we are to fight sin. Yes, we are to put it to death. Yes, we have been freed from its power and its penalty. But the main idea and the central purpose of this passage, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, is that we might walk in newness of life. And it's right there in verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We might live differently, live in this freedom that we've been given in Christ to delight in him, to enjoy him, to love him, to rejoice in all that he's given us. Things that we can never do for ourselves, we are eternally given this glorious inheritance in Christ that is forever ours. We are co-heirs with Christ. It's amazing. My... By faith in Christ's resurrection from the grave, we have been born again. We've been regenerated. We've been made into new creations. And we, the church, are now a new humanity that lives out this new life together that we've been given through our participation in Christ's resurrection. The glory of the Father has raised him from the dead so that we too might walk in this newness of life. We have been freed from the power and penalty of sin so that we might live new lives for the glory of God. Lives that we, the mankind was created from the very beginning to live. Lives that, that seek our good, our pleasure, our enjoyment in God, and lives that glorify God. Lives that have 
been wrecked by sin. and Now that's impossible. But through Christ it has been restored. Lives in which God is most glorified in us when we love him with all our hearts and lives where our greatest and deepest joy, our fullest expression of beauty and majesty and hope and fulfillment and delight and rejoicing and rest are in him. We have been raised to walk in that new life. To live as his beloved children who have been loved more than we could ever, ever imagine. To commune with the king both now and forevermore. To be conformed into the image of his beloved son. To put him first and to love him because he has first loved us. Now, this takes a little while for us to get used to, right? What does it mean to walk in this new life? Well, praise God, that's why Paul calls it a walk. It's you're walking it out. You're figuring it out. It's a journey. You're kind of going along in this whole thing. This is who you now are because of your union with Christ. And so now walk in it. Now be who you now are in Jesus. A life that is lived in this new life that you have been given in Christ. And so walking in newness of life is not about you trying to make a new life for yourself by your own righteousness, by your own successes, by your own definitions of what it means to be good and right and holy before God. So often that's how we try to live out the Christian life. But instead, the key of living this out is recognizing and accepting and resting and responding to this new life that we have been given in Christ to be who we now really are in him. As we have been adopted into Christ's family. I mean, think about adoption. This is a really helpful illustration for us to consider. With adoptive families, as soon as the papers are signed, that child is adopted into that family. A child is now one of them. He or she has, now has a new identity, a new life. But oftentimes it takes a while for that family to start functioning and acting like a family. Right? It, it takes a while for the child maybe to start calling the parents mom and dad. It, it takes a while for, for bonds to be formed and, and love to fully be expressed in the same way that maybe just kind of comes more intuitively when a child is, is born of you. There's this period of adjustment for them to get used to living in their new life together. When God calls us, he adopts us into his family and he gives us this resurrection power to do so. But ultimately, we, but we, we don't immediately live in light of that call. We must learn to become what we now truly are by putting off sin and by living to God. He doesn't just adopt us to remove us from our prior hopeless condition. He adopts us to save us into his family to experience his love, to reflect his nature, his character, his purposes, and his promises as we are truly a part of his family. To walk in a manner worthy of that calling is not to try to earn our place at the table, but to have our lives actually adorn the truth of the gospel, 
that we have been made new. See, Paul says in in Titus chapter 2 that we are to adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior. We're to wear it. We're to live it out. When God saves us, He adorns us with the precious jewels of salvation. He covers us with the pure garment of Christ's righteousness. He showers us with the riches of His glory and splendor. And like the little girl who has been given her grandmother's wedding ring, knowing how undeserving we are of such a precious treasure, we are called to wear it well. To let our walk, the ebb and flow of our daily life, be a thoughtful and careful adorning display of this precious treasured gift, this gift of new life that we have been given in Christ. And so we are to walk in that new life. We've been given this new life in Christ and have received the power to walk in it, but not fully, not completely, Because we have not wholly, body and soul, participated in the death and resurrection of Christ yet. The power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is at work in us, but we have not been physically died or we have not physically been risen. Which is why Paul says there in verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, and if we have truly trusted in his death and resurrection, then we have then we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now notice that being united in his death is past tense, but being united fully in his resurrection is future tense. If you skip down to verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, past tense again, we believe that we will also live with him, future tense. And we believe this because we know that Christ Since he has been raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, no more. There's nothing left to pay. This is where purgatory is just a disgrace. Because he died to sin once for all, there's no more to be paid. But the life he lives, notice that, lives continually, both now and forevermore, he lives to God. And again, This may sound like participation in Christ's resurrection is totally future. Let me just remind you of Colossians 3 verse 1, where it says, If then you have been raised with Christ. So it's a both and. It's an already, not yet. It's here, it's present, it's active, but it's not full. It's not complete. It's not perfected. Just like his death for sin, we have participated in his resurrection through our union with him, but not fully, not finally. If we are in Christ, we've experienced them, we've come to share in them, but one day they will be ours completely. And so we have this new life, a new life that we are to walk in, and yet it is not a perfected, glorified life that is still ours to come. The perfected life that when at last our perfected bodies are joined forever to our perfective souls and we live with Christ forever in glory. That's our future. That was what Romans 8 was talking about. But here's the thing, if that's our future and that kingdom of Christ has been ushered in, we are now a new creation, new humanity, 
new heavens and new earth have come to pass in some way, then we are to live that way today. It's not about, okay, well, you know, as long as I straighten up my act like two seconds before I die, then I'm all good. But we are to be who we now are in Christ. Not, not just kind of wait, hoping that God will wave the magic wand and that will be it. Friends, we have not been raised to walk in newness of life, to profess a faith in Christ, but then to go and live however we want, regardless of what God would have for us. This is a new life given by the glory of the Father so that we might walk in it in the way that we were always meant to walk in it, the way that Adam and Eve were meant to walk in it, the way that Christ actually walked in it. A new life that is lived not for ourselves, but for the glory of God. A life that is defined by what God calls good. What God calls holy. What God calls right. And so this redefines the way we think about everything. We let God define for us what wealth is or what happiness is or what success or beauty or joy or delight or rest or majesty are because he is the fullest expression of those things and we are meant to find our heart satisfaction in those, not in cheap imitations, not in sort of taking that and saying, you know what, I'm gonna suppress that truth and unrighteousness and worship and serve something lesser than that and find it in the world rather than in God. You must understand that we've been given this new life so that just as the risen Christ, we live our lives both now and forevermore to God. We have been given this new life so that we can now actually live those lives, to live a life like Christ lived. Living to God is living for the glory of God where we realize that the gift that we've been given is to find our soul's happiness in the one place that it was always meant to be found. The fullest expression of joy and delight and hope in the glory of God. And because of our union with Christ in his death and resurrection, we can now actually walk in newness of life. That can actually be our hope, our goal, our future. We can actually pursue that right here and right now and find that as better than all of the cheap imitations of this world. This is John Stott said, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are not only historical facts and significant doctrines, but personal experiences of the Christian believer. They are events in which we ourselves have come to share. We're sharing in it now. No matter where you are, where you find yourself in this walk, they're yours. So walk in it. And in coming to share them, we die to sin and we live to God. And so in verses one, or 11 through 14, we are then told, what to do in light of these truths. So everything up to this point has been indicative. It's been telling us who we now are in Christ. Verses 11 through 14 are saying, okay, now here's what you do with that. All right? And so we have been buried with Christ. We've been raised to walk in new life. Therefore, third, we must live as those who are dead to sin and alive to God. 
Verse 11 starts out by saying, You, so you also must consider yourselves. Now, this is a command here. You must consider yourselves. You must account yourself. You must reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Saying, this is who I am. And I believe this is true because of what Christ has done for me. This is who I am. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God. Not that you're lying to yourself, trying to deceive yourself into something that you're not, but this is who you are because you've been buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life with him. This is who you now are. And so this is how you have to see yourself. Do you see yourself as dead to sin and alive to God? And you have to see yourself as both. Oh, it's so important to get this, that we we see as both. Dead to sin and alive to God, right? If you see yourself, for example, as only dead to sin, but not alive to God, you will fall into the trap of thinking that all your sins, penalties, and consequences have been covered. They've been atoned for. You don't have to deal with those anymore. And now you're free to live and do whatever you please. Right? You're not living unto God. You're living for yourself. But friends, if that's the case, then you haven't really grasped the first one anyway. You haven't really grasped what it means to die to sin because dying to sin is dying to yourself and living to God. We put ourselves first before God in that. Also, if you consider yourself to be alive to God but not dead to sin, then you will constantly live in guilt and fear of failure and self-condemnation. Because if I'm alive in Christ and I'm meant to live for the glory of God, then why do I still sin at all? And if I sin at all, then what does that mean about my relationship with God? I don't even know. And you're just constantly anxious and worrisome and you're trying to make it about your perfection and what you can do for God because you're supposed to be alive in him, but you're not dead to sin. And so what do you do with that? You can't live a perfect life in your own power. And if you fail to grasp either of those, or both of those, that you in Christ are both dead to sin and alive to God, then you will either give up hope, believing that you can never be forgiven, or you will kill yourself trying to earn your way to God by atoning for your sin in your own way, which is something that you can never, ever, ever, ever do. But truly... And rightly considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God because we have shared in the death and resurrection of Christ through our union with him helps us to be who we now are in Christ. This is who I am because of what Jesus did on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. I have died with Christ and I have been raised with him. I am dead to sin and alive to God. I can now live in light of my new identity. It helps us to become what we are becoming. Not by our own power or by our own strength, not in the absence of our own, but but also not in the absence of our own effort, but it allows us to, as Paul says in in Philippians chapter 2, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so we are at work as we should be, but we will not fail because God is ultimately the one who is at work and he will bring to completion what he has begun in the day of Christ Jesus. 
And so we could do this in absolute confidence, knowing that God's not just standing up there in heaven, just kind of keeping a checklist. Oh, you did it again, Chet. Oh, you did it again. Clear, you're out. Done. But that God is continually working his grace in us so that even when I sin against him, I can repent and believe. And I can hold to a faith that is not just intellectual, it's not just words on a page, but has transformed my heart so that I actually become more and more like Jesus. And so we must see ourselves. We must consider ourselves as God sees us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Paul continues then in verse 12 with another command that flows straight out of these truths. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Because you have now died with Christ and you have risen with Christ, sin does not rule over you. You rule over it. You do not have to obey its passions. You know, I know that the desires of your heart can be deceptive and at times it can seem just like automatic or irresistible or even overwhelming to think that we can just, we have to sin. I can do no other. All I can do is sin. But you could fight against it and defeat it because in Christ, you now reign over it. It does not reign over you. You reign over it. You do not have to obey it. It has to obey you. And so often we lose the fights of faith because we mistakenly think that we can't not sin. And so we lose the battle before we ever really get into it. We throw in the towel before we ever put the gloves on. But Christ conquered sin so that we might conquer sin and death. But not as absent-minded, passive bystanders, as though God is going to wave his magic wand and then one day you're surprisingly going to become some sin-killing ninja for Jesus. It's not going to happen. No, he links our justification to our sanctification so that we gradually become who we now are in Jesus as we fight with the sin-conquering resurrection power that we have received through our union with him. But not only do we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God and refuse to let sin reign in our hearts, verse 13 says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. We are not to present our members. We are not to offer up our hands and our eyes and our ears and our minds and our hearts and our sexual organs to sin, to be used for unrighteousness, for for wickedness, for doing what is wrong or sinful or against God's good and perfect design for us. But how often we just give ourselves over without much of a thought in our head. We just offer our members up to sin. What we watch, what we waste our time doing, 
We just casually, flippantly just give ourselves up to sin and think, you know, it's not a big deal. I can do that. won't really affect me. And then we wonder, wonder why we're losing the fight against sin and we're not growing in a love for Christ. But Paul says, no, listen, present yourselves to God. Offer yourselves to God. That you have opportunities in each and every decision that you face that you can go one of two ways. You can either offer yourself to sin or you can offer yourself to God. doesn't matter what you're doing, whether you're, you're working at your classes or, or you're taking care of kids at home, and that's mind-blowing, crazy, I know, right? I've got a lot of them, and, and my wife deals with a lot more than I do, right? Or, or whatever it is that you are given to, you have... In those moments, a decision to make. Do I present myself, my members, to sin for unrighteousness, or do I offer myself to God? And you have options. We're to offer ourselves up to God, to devote ourselves to things that will lead us towards righteousness. To offer our our eyes and our ears and our hands and our hearts and minds as purposeful instruments for righteousness. Make sure that what you're thinking and observing and absorbing and, and doing serves righteousness, not unrighteousness. You have the options. And we can do this because of the full assurance that we've been given in verse 14. As this is so, so important for us to get. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Sin will not have dominion over you. It won't rule in your heart and in your life because you are under grace. That's who you are if you are in Christ Jesus. Grace that doesn't give you license to sin. Grace that has the power to transform your life so that sin will have no dominion over you. And this grace is ours because we who are in Christ have been buried with Him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. Friends, that's what Good Friday and Easter Sunday does in us. In just a few moments, Catherine Cox is going to enter into these waters. And she's going to proclaim her union with Christ by faith. She's going to speak of how she considers herself now to be dead to sin and alive to God through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. She comes desiring to be a part of this church so that together we can fight against sin's desire to reign in our mortal bodies and to learn what it means together to present our members to God as instruments for righteousness. And we, Redeemer Church, in baptizing her, are committing to do the same. And all of this is possible because of the grace that we have received on Easter Sunday. So I've talked a lot to believers 
And let me just address you if you're here and you don't follow Christ. You don't, maybe this seems really, really foreign to you. Or maybe you're here and you've, maybe you've considered yourself to be a believer, but then like in listening to this, you realize that Romans 6 doesn't really speak to you all that well. All I can say is this can be yours. If Christ can rise from the grave, then God's grace can cover you. And His death for sin and His life-giving power can transform your heart. And I hope that you see how much you, you need of it. One day, we will all stand before this life-giving God and give an account for the grace that we've received. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you grew up, whether you, were, you come from somewhere far land overseas or you grew up right in the middle of the Bible Belt, God has given grace to you so that you might come to see your need of Him. And you will have to give an account for that. But God's grace doesn't just stop there because God has made it known to us this perfect offer of forgiveness and new life through Jesus Christ. And that what we could never do for ourselves to make ourselves good enough before this one true and holy eternal God that we will stand before, Christ can do for us and in us and through us so that we might become children of God. And that there is nothing better than to be given that. That grace that God gives through Christ can be yours and it will change your life. And so turn from your sin and receive new life in Him. And if you've got questions about that, please ask somebody. If, if you came with somebody, ask them. If you want to talk with me, come and talk with me. But let's get your questions answered. And for all of us, I know that there are many here that have just been confused and bounced back and forth between legalism and antinomianism or somewhere in between. I pray that we would all live in light of this truth. That it is our union with the risen Christ that allows us to now walk in newness of life. That we can and evermore will be transformed into the image of His most precious and glorious Son as we behold Him and marvel at Him. I hope that that's your desire. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the grace that you have given us in Christ. Lord, I pray that, that you would help us come to truly understand and delight in this union that we now have with him through faith. A union that actually allows us to die to sin and to live for you. Oh God, open our eyes to, to see our need of Christ to behold the glories of heaven and to find that as more precious than the feeble mud pie offerings of this world. And that we would not try to earn that by our own ability 
or just assume that we're okay because we've prayed a prayer or done a religious deed like being baptized, but that we would rest assured that we have now been united with Christ, not by any work of our own, but because you have done this work in us. You have sealed us with the Spirit who confirms that we are your children, and we live in light of the power that we can now change to walk in this newness of life both now and forevermore. Lord, help us to want that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.